0: Do you enjoy listening to On The Ear, but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand, with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On The Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up, and use code EAR21, EAR21, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. While many audiologists specialize in different types of care, such as tinnitus, vestibular, or cochlear implants, few emphasize the distinct connection between our field and that of musicians. Musicians are a population that rely on hearing for so many aspects of their career, their relationship with their audiologist should be rock solid. But many audiologists do not have a foundation in music, and so working with this population can be really intimidating. Today's guest is going to help show us how embracing that challenge can be so rewarding and how embracing maybe an alternative point of view can also be so rewarding. Dr. Heather Malik, owner of Soundcheck Audiology, is a musician and audiologist who hails from Northeast Ohio, but is known internationally as an expert clinician and public speaker in the fields of music audiology, teleaudiology, and alternative amplification. Heather grew up in a musical family and since the age of two has been singing, playing piano, violin, and fiddle, and guitar. In her early teens, she began teaching music, touring, and recording. She received an undergraduate degree in music history and literature from the University of Akron and continued on to earn her Doctor of Audiology degree from Kent State University. From 2013 to 2017, she was the Clinical Director at Sensophonics Hearing Conservation in Chicago, and she is actively involved with the American Academy of Audiology and recently co-authored the Clinical Consensus Document for Audiological Services for Music Industry Personnel. She's on the leadership advisory team for the National Hearing Conservation Association and is a co-chair of the College Music Society's Committee on Musicians' Health. Since 2020, she has served as head of audiology for TUNED, a groundbreaking virtual audiology clinic. In addition to her extensive clinical and educational work, she developed and manages the first ever hearing wellness video curriculum for the music industry. She's a sought-after consultant, and she's a research team member at the University of Akron, where she's studying pharmaceutical intervention for noise-induced hearing loss. Just a couple of financial disclosures, I am the host of On the Ear and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and Dr. Maliak received compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for her contribution in today's presentation. We are so, so fortunate to have Heather joining us. You can tell she's highly in demand for her expertise, but I know that our listeners are going to be so excited to learn more about all of your knowledge. Heather, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So, I mean, your CV is outrageous okay it's, it's so long and that's not even getting into all of like i'm sure you've done a lot of traveling and so just person to person here clinician to clinician i'm also a musician not nearly as accomplished but i played guitar and i was in an all-male acapella group in college this is actually the first time i'm sharing this on the podcast so that's a yikes but i have always loved incorporating some of that music knowledge into my practice but i can't say even in the slightest that I'm in any way a music audiologist because I just don't have any training in that. So I'm curious what led you, other than obviously your extensive musical background, what led you into a clinical focus that was you know, in this specialized part of audiology?
1: That's a great question. Thank you for that question. And I, I love getting this question in case there are students listening. I was in graduate school to become an ethnomusicologist and that had been my chosen life path for most of my life. So I play old-time Appalachian music. I was very interested in ethnic music from my family, Slavic music, and I decided to go that path. Well, what happened was about my first week in graduate school for that degree, I found out about audiology and had what my dad called a come to Jesus moment. And I saw the word and I was like, what is this? It was an ad online, actually, for the local program here, the Northeast Ohio Audiology Consortium. And, you know, I went to the library and people always seem to laugh when I say that. But, you know, this was back in the day when you went to the library and I looked up books on hearing and audiology and I was blown away. I was so blown away and captivated immediately that as a musician, the one sense that I relied on, I really knew nothing about and it had never come up. Even with getting a degree in music, it had never come up. So,
0: it's so interesting.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting. We can get more into that in, in a bit in terms of why doesn't it come up for musicians and kind of where can audiologists change a little bit. But to make a long story short, I ended up applying for the Northeast Ohio Audiology Consortium, NOAC, and wrote a very basic entrance essay that said, I'm a musician and I love my hearing and I'll, I'll work really hard and yada, yada. And they ended up taking me. And then through school I always had a huge interest in hearing conservation as it related to musicians and every time I did a project or had to write a paper I tried to keep it music focused. I read every article I could, even to the point during my final year, you know, in classes and clinic here in Ohio, I did a large Grand Rounds presentation on an opera singer who had sudden sensory neural hearing loss and really bothersome tinnitus. And then I had the pleasure of meeting Michael Santucci, who is one of the fathers of music audiology. And at the time, he really was not taking students. He had taken one fourth-year student before me years, years prior. And I met him at a conference. He was willing to sit down with me, and I sort of pleaded my case. And he said, okay, I'll take you on. And then at the end of my year there as an extern, he said, you've got to stay and direct my clinic. So that was sort of my journey into audiology. And after about five years or so, I guess almost six years at Sensophonics, I decided to come home to Ohio because I have eight nieces and nephews, and I was missing everything. <laughs> so that's my whole story in a nutshell.
0: Wow. That's really, really cool. I had no idea. And I do want to get into that, though, then, because I have a very close friend who was in that college a cappella group with me now, who is a professor at. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking this at a great music university in Nashville, Belmont. And he's a vocal instructor and he is an amazing artist. His name's Mark Tress. I need to make sure he hears this. But I remember, you know, early on in his career when he was working with students and well, especially when we were in undergrad together, I was taking these communication disorders classes and he was so interested in everything I was learning. He was like, he started taking the same classes as me because he was so interested in this. And so it does sound like there's no inherent you know, anatomy of hearing or hearing conservation component in music education? And before you mentioned maybe talking about that a little more, is that something you could expand on?
1: Yeah. You know what? There is. There is education available, but there is a divide on how it's presented. So a number of years ago, the National Association of Schools of Music and the Performing Arts Medicine Association put out some guidelines on how to teach hearing health. And What's so funny is I was, I think I was in my first year of grad school or something. And my sister, who is a, just an amazing classical pianist, was a professor at a university at the time. And I remember her saying to me, I don't know how to teach this. Like they got a handout, you know, saying you've got to teach ear anatomy and here's what a decibel is and all this stuff. And, you know, and it just, there's a real divide there. So that's my way of saying, yes, it is out there. It is out there. The curriculum I created covers the NASM guidelines. And the NASM is one of the accrediting bodies for schools of music. So technically, they're, you know, they're supposed to follow that. It's not a requirement. But what we often see, and this is what had happened to me when I was in music school, is audiologists who will see music students and will take ear impressions on them and fit them with hearing protection. And that's all they do. And this is so true in all of music world. I do think it's shifting, so for example, I think of the music audiologists who started in the eighties. I mentioned Mike Santucci, I think of Lisa Tannenbaum. I'm sure a lot of people know her name to me, she's one of the most famous audiologists I know i mean she was she was working with all the rock stars in the eighties and nineties trying to teach them hearing health, you know before it was even a thing and you know, so things have certainly changed since then, but we still find overwhelmingly that audiologists do not. They often don't even test hearing on musicians; they'll take ear impressions, they'll either make a sale or they'll just have the artist pay for the impressions and then it's sort of a go with God thing now these days, there are some AUD programs that have music m- management classes, and I don't know if I'm getting the name of the class exactly right. I know there's an audiologist Matt Bell who I had met years ago, and he's in Portland, Oregon, I think, and I believe he was teaching a management of musicians class so I do think it's getting better and it's expanding, but in terms of reaching music students and things, often they're just presented with earplugs and then that's the end.
0: Yeah, that's a really great insight. And I am fortunate that here at the University of South Carolina, the music department here reached out to our department and said, hey, would someone be willing to do at least just a guest lecture on hearing health and safety? And so that's something I get to do each spring. And this spring, for the first time, I connected with their department, I guess the, the music students take kind of like a wellness class in this one semester in their undergraduate career. And it's on a lot of things related to you know, the life of a musician, and then hearing health is one of those aspects. But at the end of this month, we'll actually be going there and doing hearing screenings for as many of the students to sign up. So they can have that experience, we can possibly catch any hearing loss that might be there. And if not, they just feel a little bit more acquainted with the process of a hearing evaluation, even if it's just a screening. And then our students get the experience of doing hearing screening. So I'm really excited to see more about that and kind of explore their ideas about hearing a little bit in those screenings. I'm curious if you know a clinician who's going to be Maybe speaking at a high school where there's a lot of music students, or in a situation I'm in where they're going to be seeing a lot of music students, what do you feel like is kind of like a critical word of advice for, I guess this is like a double layered thing, right? Word of advice for audiologists to tell students here in a music kind of related field?
1: I think that, you know, part of hearing conservation in general, and of course music audiology expands into amplification, which we didn't even get into yet, but when you're speaking with young musicians, one of the key components of hearing loss prevention or hearing conservation is education. And it is a bit of cheerleading. And I hate to say it that way, but so often audiologists focus on being doctors of hearing loss instead of doctors of hearing. That That's the message that comes across. And so when I speak with younger musicians, I sit down with them. Actually, I had a family in my office recently, and that was kind of like, speaking to high schoolers, it was three kids and two parents, all musicians, and it was their first time getting custom earplugs. And we spent the afternoon together. We spent three hours together and I gave a lecture and I said, you know what? You've got these amazing instruments and the only person who can help you take care of your instrument is an audiologist. What if you never took your trumpet or your violin or your drum set? If you knew someone could look at it and tell you if damage was starting if injury was starting to that, wouldn't you want to know? Like I take my bow to get rehaired, or I have a a guy I work with here in, in Northern Canton for my fiddle to do a setup and things like that. And so when you put it into terms like that about it being an instrument and caring for it in such a way and learning the parts, just like when you're learning your instrument, you learn all the pieces and parts of your instrument. I try to frame everything like that as if they are a music student But the ear is the new instrument they're learning.
0: That's a great idea. That's a really great way to put it. And I think that's really impactful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think I'm definitely going to be stealing that if that's okay with you.
1: (laughs) Oh, please do. That's great. That's
0: awesome. Okay, so then let's get in. I know you were just kind of hinting at amplification. Amplification, evaluations, hearing protection. Like how does your work, do you only work with musicians or do you see sort of the general population as well?
1: I see some of the general population up until COVID. It was full-time music industry for me.
0: Oh, I see. I see.
1: When they stopped working, I stopped working.
0: Oh, I see. Oh, wow.
1: That was it. The whole music industry shut down, and I'm part of the music industry, or I was. I have started expanding into more things now that I didn't get the chance to do before because I was too busy. So in a way, it was sort of a blessing. It was a real heartache for like a year. Yeah, but you know, the tours are coming back, and I have some orchestras lined up for this year. So pre-COVID, it was full-time musicians. Now it's it's like 50% music industry and then maybe 25% research and 25% tuned. Oh,
0: got it. Cool. The company
1: I work with. Yeah. Cool.
0: I just bought my first concert ticket in like two years. I'm so excited.
1: Who are you going to see?
0: Phoebe Bridgers.
1: I don't know who that is. Oh, gosh.
0: I'm a diehard fan. She's kind of an alternative a singer, songwriter, but very excited about that. But yes, I can feel the world, especially the world of live music kind of getting back to where it was little by little. I'm curious then, I guess maybe if if you don't have a frame of reference for it, maybe if you think back to like your AUD training, how your work with musicians, whether it's an evaluation, fitting amplification, and this is a really broad question, so take it in any direction you want. How does your work with musicians kind of differ from a more, you know, general population? If you think like, an older adult with presbycusis, or a child with a congenital hearing loss? Like what makes working with a musician different? Or how do you approach it differently?
1: Well, I'll just tell you what I do. When I think of who, like who I would call a music audiologist in the US, I can think of maybe six or seven people. And I know we probably do things a little differently. So I'm just saying that for the people who are listening, this isn't how we all do it. Now, that being said, If you are listening and you're interested in starting to see musicians, the American Academy of Audiology Guidelines for working with music industry personnel is essentially a a guidebook for that. And many of us got together and wrote that as a reference. When someone comes to see me, I always book at least an hour. I probably spend more like an hour and a half with them if it's their first visit. And the first, gosh, 30 to 40 minutes is all education. So... I actually have a three-ring binder (laughs) with pictures and graphs and all kinds of things, and everything in my clinic can fit into a suitcase because I used to do everything backstage at venues. So I used to pull up to the venue, go backstage, and there'd be you know five guys from the band and ten from the crew sitting around, and we'd do education, and then I do a full hearing test on everyone, 125 hertz to 16,000. I recently have added the words in noise test. What's very interesting about that is I'm not seeing what I would expect. Their words and noise scores are lower than I would expect, even with their extended high frequencies being very, very good. So the bulk of the appointment is education. Of course, if they're getting something like earplugs or in-ear monitors, with in-ear monitors, I often do a lot of demoing. So like I'm in my clinic right now, and next to me I have, for any of you who know sound, I use a Fender passport system, which is not a very good system, but I have a little setup with speakers. It's left over from my days of being a street performer at Disney World, to be honest.
0: (laughs) Wait, hold on. We might have to dive into that a little bit more. You can't just gloss right over. We'll come back.
1: I'm using my same equipment. So I'm using the same equipment that I used as a performer. It's now set up in my office. And like with ambient in-ears, I'll do demos and things. I really like a hands-on approach. I do the same thing with hearing aids. I'm really big on... Getting paid for my time and expertise. And, like, for example, I'm totally unbundled. So I spend a lot of time with people. I give them a lot of value and they pay me well for it. And I do the same thing with hearing aids. My office, when I see someone from the general population or musicians, it's very interesting to see their differing reactions to amplification. But I'm on a street that has restaurants and shops and things. So often we'll go on a walk, you know, if it's not raining or snowing, and we'll listen to things that way. So I'm kind of going off track of your question, but it's...
0: No, no, this is exactly my question. Yeah.
1: A ton of education, a lot of hearing testing, and then, of course, educating about the hearing testing. I'm a huge fan of questionnaires. So if I get someone with, you know, tinnitus, I'll probably do... I like the TFI a lot. So I usually do that to see, you know, to gauge where they're at. I like to do the HHIA if I'm doing amplification so that I can do it, you know, at one month, three months, six months, that kind of thing, and check improvement. So. I like to pack a lot into an appointment and I don't like to rush it. People pay me for 15 minutes blocks of time. And whatever it ends up being, you know, that's what it is. I haven't had any complaints so far. Sometimes I overdo it. I'm so big on education that sometimes you know, I drag on and on, especially when I get a full band in here. I had a full band in my office a couple months ago. They were on tour. They stopped in. And we could have spent all day together. And that's what I love about the music industry. If you really start teaching them things, they just start, the questions start pouring out and the conversations start. I really, really love getting a whole band together and having it be an experience with everybody. I just had a band call me the other day. They all want to be seen together. And so we make it a big hearing event. You know, it's not like someone going to the doctor. It's like a journey we're all taking together.
0: I love it. I love it. That sounds like such a really cool and unique experience and such a fun way to, I mean, you know, counseling and education is such a big part of what we do, but having Like it would be, I guess it's not uncommon for me to see like a husband and wife. And I actually currently on my caseload have a mother and daughter and the daughter's a teenager and the mom's, you know, in her mid thirties, they have the exact same cookie bite hearing loss, right? And so that kind of counseling is always really fun because we can speak more to their personal life together and their experience together. But a band, like a group of five people who've probably been together for a long time, who are in like extremely dynamic listening situations, who maybe all have a completely different perspective on like what's safe. You know what I mean? Like they probably all are just on completely different pages sometimes. That's got to be a really fun challenge in terms of counseling and educating.
1: It is. And it's often really fun. And pre-COVID, of course, this would all happen either on the tour bus or backstage. And that's starting to come back now. But one additional thing I would do on site is take sound level measurements, get an idea of how they're playing, you know, watch what their heads and necks and jaws are doing and take that into account when doing ear impressions. I like to be there during sound check and see all of that. I don't always go to the shows because I've just, I'm not a night person anymore. (laughs) I don't know what happened to me when I first started, when I first graduated, I was like out at shows all the time. I was just talking to a student the other day about how one time I had to wait till three in the morning to test somebody's hearing after the show. And I can't imagine doing that now. So I like to go for sound check. I'll hang out a little bit, and then I'm done. <laughs>
0: That's so cool. That's so cool. So you gave me a little bit of a sense of the evaluation process. I would say it's probably pretty rare for most audiologists to do 125 to 16,000. You know, it's just like a whole different set of equipment. It's a different one thing I find challenging about. It, I mean, I rarely do that. Maybe in like an occasional ototoxicity monitoring case. But I wouldn't say I regularly incorporate anything past 8K beyond that. And I just find like for someone who isn't going to be fit with any amplification, let's say their hearing loss is just 12,000 hertz and above, well, I'm probably not going to recommend amplification. And so I I feel like I'm not as equipped to answer their questions as to other than, you know, protecting your hearing. What do I do about this loss at these ultra highs? I just feel like it would, it kind of complicates my counseling process. I'm curious, like what you think about that and like how you approach that let's say they have normal across the board and then it's kind of steeply sloping in the highs is it really it just gives you an opportunity to i guess to be a bit more i guess aggressive is the right word but like you know aggressive about hearing conservation like look here's the warning sign here's the red flag
1: sometimes it's from noise and there's certainly literature to show that extended high frequencies can show injury a lot of musicians have asymmetric loss You know, if they're standing at the same part of the stage for years and years, they might have the drummer to their left or a wedge monitor to their right or what have you. I'll give you an example. I think this was about a month ago. A guy came in. He was, I'm trying to remember how old he was, like late 30s, I think mid to late 30s. He had been to see an audiologist and he went in because he knew something was like off. He said he was, he was missing like the, the harmonic structure, the overtone structure of, of music. And so he went in got a hearing test, gorgeous thresholds 250 to 8K. So he emailed me his test ahead of time and he's like, I think I'm going crazy. The audiologist told me my hearing's perfect. I'm not sure what's going on here. So he came in, there was an asymmetry in the extended highs. And I said to him, you know, I don't know when this started, but you're not crazy. And that was enough for him. Again, using the term instrument, for ears to own his instrument and want to care for it. He got scared. He went and had an evaluation done and was told that he's totally fine. And that was very disturbing to him. Now, the other thing that could be done, of course, is otoacoustic emissions. I don't have that equipment, partly because when you look at hearing conservation and you look at like regulated conservation, well, what are we looking at? We're looking at 3, 4, and 6K. And so, you know, but that would be something that could be added. So if someone's listening and they're thinking, hmm, my audiometer doesn't do extended highs, how could I maybe find injuries sooner? Well, you could assess outer hair cell function. Although I just read a paper recently that said 40 to 50% of outer hair cells could be injured. Oh, no, that was for audiogram. Excuse me. I totally see. This is what we talked about before we started recording. Does it matter if I skip up on my words? And I said, no. So don't edit that. Just leave it. 40 to 50% of outer hair cells can be injured or missing and not show up on the audiogram. That's what I was going for. So that's what I'm saying. If you have something like OAE equipment, you know, you could pull that out and show the person, hey, you were actually right about your hearing. And here's what we can do to kind of mitigate this injury that's happening.
0: That's great. That's really awesome. I appreciate you making it a little bit more approachable for someone who's new in this realm or you know considering this kind of thing cuz it can certainly be overwhelming especially i mean speaking from having very close friends who are all musicians they're almost always very smart And know what they want, or at least sometimes. And so I feel like if you aren't a musician and somebody starts asking you about overtones or things like that, your response is going to be, what? And, you know, maybe their expectation is, well, you're an audiologist. You should know everything about sound. But we never learned about overtones and, you know, harmonics and things. Well, I guess some harmonics, but you know what I mean there. So I guess that can be a little bit over-intimidating, I guess is probably the right word.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's, of course, there's a, when you look at the literature on extended heights and things... They can be variable. The other thing is, I do want to point out, people might be listening to this thinking, well, how is she doing all this testing on site? I use an audiometer called a kudu wave. And so if I don't have good sound level measurements in the room, that's why I say sometimes it's backstage or on the bus. I have been in a shower stall in a bathroom backstage with people. I've been in the back of my car with people. So you know, if you're going to be going out and working with artists, you have to be aware of whether or not you're getting accurate results.
0: Sure. And then so that's another level of kind of the equipment and the outside expertise that it takes. I'm assuming you have to be pretty confident with like a sound level meter. Tell me a little bit about your impression process. I'm assuming, I mean, we all are trained to do impressions in a similar way, I guess, but I'm curious if there's an approach to it that maybe an audiologist you've worked with who hasn't worked with musicians They, you know, do impressions one way, but you're like, oh, no, when it comes to musicians, you've got to change it up in some kind of way.
1: Yes, I do. And I think, you know, we could break it down into just a couple main points. With any hearing conservation, so not just with musicians, but any hearing conservation, it is better to use a high viscosity silicone so that when you're taking the impression it's going into the canal and it's actually distending it a bit so that you're getting a tighter fit. Of course, we wouldn't want that with like an acrylic hearing aid. Because that could be painful. So that would be sort of the first little difference. Now, a lot of audiologists who do take ear impressions for like in-ear monitors, they might be thinking, well, okay, so the difference is that you use a bite block with musicians. A lot of in-ear monitor companies call for use of a bite block. I'm actually not sure where that recommendation came from because I see many fit issues doing things that way. There have been a couple of studies done looking at holding the jaw open halfway. And some ear canals, it's either, I think it's about 50%, the ear canal diameter gets a little bit larger. And so that may have been where that started. But but the funny part is, okay, you can get a fit with their jaw open, but then what happens when they move their jaw and the seal breaks? So to me, you know, it is what it is. And of course, sometimes you're at the mercy of the manufacturer of what your person is ordering. I tend to not work with those types of manufacturers. I only fit silicone in ears. But when you have the impression material ready, I usually have them just start with that Slightly open mouth in case there's a chance they might have a little bit bigger space there. And then when the material is setting up, I have them do any movements that they would do when they're wearing the earplugs or in-ears. I make sure I get like well past the second bend. Your best isolation is going to be past the second bend of the ear canal. So for a good steady fit good isolation and then of course a full helix if you're doing something like an in ear. I have a great example of why an audiologist should know what the musician plays. So if a musician calls the clinic, ask them what they play, if they use something with a mouthpiece, have them play it. You know, if they play flute or saxophone or clarinet or whatever, have them play that instrument. It's even better if they're not shy and they'll do exactly what they do. I I had a guitar player who I was working with, a very famous guy, and I had never seen him perform before. And I had fit him within your monitors a couple of times, and he consistently had fit issues. And I felt terrible, you know, because I was a young audiologist at the time, and I thought, what am I doing wrong? So his monitor engineer invited me to come to the show. They were opening for Bob Dylan. And I thought, okay, cool, I'll come. It was a festival, it'd be fun. And I saw him play for the first time. And as soon as he picked up the guitar, his head started going back and forth shoulder to shoulder. Like looking to his left, looking to his right. He had never done that with me. And every time he did that, he would push his left ear back in. Like it was coming out. And so I had actually seen him for an appointment before that show. And I texted him after and I said, I'm so sorry I have to see you again. We need to get new ear impressions. Just trust me. And so did the whole thing again, but had him do that head movement. And he did not have a fit issue after that. So I was working for Sensophonics at the time. And I know we made a note like in his file that the ear impressions need to be taken that way. So there are little things like that, the headbangers, you know, that it really moves your ear canals around. Probably not true for everybody. I don't think everybody's that dynamic. I think he was an outlier. But that was the first time I really thought, wow, I'm not just following like a protocol here. This really matters.
0: That's great. And I think I'm seeing a really common thread in everything you're saying, which is when you're working with this population, the importance of things being like ecologically valid right whether you're walking down the street with the hearing aids on or they're taking the impression with the way they move and the way you know all of those aspects of it i mean i think that's such a fascinating thing and honestly i'm not too you know tuned into the literature on ecological validity and audiology. I feel like for a lot, I personally have a set of speakers when I'm doing a hearing aid fitting. And when there's particular things, it's hard to perfectly, you know, simulate a noisy restaurant. But I at least I have this one video on YouTube, that's a busy coffee shop, and I play it every single time. And if we're working with a remote microphone, if we're working with it, I try to add some layer of that. And I really, I'm hoping that the future of audiology is a lot more of that. Because every single clinician there's no way you haven't heard someone say it sounded great in here but then I went out there and it was like totally different you know I mean whether it's one of my cochlear implant patients or hearing aid patient I hear that kind of thing like pretty often. And so the way you combat that is bringing the outside in if you can't go out there. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Like, I know we wanted to talk a bit about alternative audiology or this moniker of kind of approaching things differently. Is that an aspect of it? Or how do you see incorporating ecological validity in kind of your clinical practice beyond taking a walk with the hearing aids or that great example of doing impressions that way?
1: It's funny you bring up the hearing aid thing. Do you ever, (laughs) I feel like, Maybe I shouldn't ask this because we're being recorded, but when you're fitting a patient before they come in, do you ever put the hearing aids on and program them and walk around outside yourself with them on?
0: I have never done that.
1: (laughs) So most music audiologists I know do this.
0: Interesting.
1: And I do it too. Of course, you know, I change out the, I have like receivers I put on and stuff, making sure they're working. I don't like put my (laughs) my cooties on somebody (laughs) else. But, you know, usually when I do a programming, I like to get an idea of what the pair of hearing aids I'm going to be putting on them actually sounds like and kind of program them a little bit from there. I was just curious if you do that too, since you were mentioning doing things in the clinic.
0: No, I've never tried that before, but I think that's, I have tried most of the time when we have like a demo pair from the manufacturer, I'll try them out for a day or two, especially for things like streaming. I just want to hear what the streaming audio quality is like, but never like fit to the patient's loss and tried it out. I think that's a really interesting idea.
1: Try it sometime. I have been surprised several times when looking at the loss, even when it meets target, you know, following best practices at how you can improve the sound quality. And
0: so interesting,
1: you can tell the difference with the patients. And again, I didn't invent that I learned it from a couple other music audiologists. Now granted, most of my hearing aid patients are in the music industry. So they're listening for different things. But anyway, back to your question, I think a really simple way to put things is consistently asking ourselves, why do we do what we do? One of my favorite things to ask students recently has been the simple question, why do we test hearing? And it usually takes them a few minutes to give me a good reason in terms of why do we do the test the way we do it? When was the test invented? When was it last improved upon? And kind of getting back to the basics of what we're doing and not just following the recipe. You know, there's everyone likes to say audiologists like recipes. We like cookbooks. But sometimes we get lost in that and we don't really consider why we're doing what we're doing.
0: That's great. That's a great reminder. And I'm wondering if that's a good transition to talking about kind of what alternative audiology is. But I did, before we kind of switch gears into that, which I guess it isn't a major gear switch, but I did just want to speak, have you speak a little bit to hearing conservation in general and what, you know, a general audiologist who doesn't even necessarily work with musicians, how maybe you've heard them counsel hearing conservation before and how maybe you think as a profession even, we need to kind of shift either the way we talk about it or the way we train students, like what work needs to be done when it comes to audiologists and hearing conservation.
1: Boy, that's a loaded question.
0: I know. I'm sorry. I know. It's a lot. It's a lot. We can, we can <laughs> cut it up. We can cut it into different, smaller questions.
1: The thing is, what's so interesting about the field of audiology is that it's full of wonderful people who really care. And that's something I really love about our field. All of us got into this, well, most of us got into this field because we love people and we want to help them. But then we get these sort of shackles put on us by sort of the model of what makes our world's turn, which is income and sales and, you know, things like that. And I think part of it, I'm hesitating on what I say because I really don't want to offend anybody. And that's not what I mean by this. What I mean by this is we're often limited by how our field has been structured, but so many people can make more money off of a sale of hearing aids than they can off of seeing someone for a quick hearing test and, you know, recommendations on on how to protect their hearing. And I think so often it comes down to that. When you run your own practice like what I do, of course, you can do whatever you want. My friends who work in practices where they have a manager above them or maybe it's an ENT running the practice or things like that they're often not really allowed to spend time with those patients, like the time that they would need. So, you know, I I spoke with a friend of mine recently who saw someone come in for a pair of just custom earplugs for like recreational shooting. And it was a 15 minute appointment. It was just come in, take the ear impressions and send them on their way. And there was no time allowed for care. And I don't think that's a unique situation. I bet there are people listening to this kind of nodding their heads where they're sort of at the mercy of Whatever the structure is. So, so that's the first thing I just want to put out there. I do think people are limited. I also think that partially comes from bundling of pricing. You know, why can we make more on hearing aids? Well, it's a bundled model, you know, and there's, there's like an expectation there. I'm trying to get back to the main point of your question. So,
0: no, 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 no. I think this is all super relevant. I'm loving this.
1: In terms of like non OSHA regulated hearing conservation, that applies to everyone, which is, 700 million ears in our country, roughly, which would be like, what, 63,000 some patients or ears? An audiologist. <laughs> like, how are we not caring for all those ears? And, you know, a lot of the limitations, of course, now telehealth is opening doors left and right, but hearing testing, education, recommending earplugs if they're needed, perhaps counseling someone on how they're listening. Throughout their day, I can get into this more when we talk about alternative stuff, but we have a workforce now that's listening to headphones and earphones eight to 10 hours a day on calls with remote work. This is, if there's ever been a time for hearing conservation, it's now. It's now. I mean, we know the World Health Organization is saying that by 2050, the rate of hearing loss is going to like double. And they have already said for several years now that 1.1 billion young people are at risk for hearing loss. And so I guess, like, where's our community? And I think a lot of that comes down to people maybe not understanding the principles of hearing conservation outside of that regulation environment.
0: Just thinking of OSHA every time. Yeah.
1: Correct. But you can modify, you know, there's OSHA 1910.95, the law. You can take that and modify it for each person who comes into your practice. And I learned how to do that from Mike Santucci. And now I've taken my own spin on it. So one of the things I do with pro orchestras is I go on site and I do all the testing with everybody for a week and it's modeled after OSHA. But it's not a regulated, <laughs> it's not a regulated area. But any audiologist can look up that law and write out the main points of it and say, well, how would I do this with, you know, a 25-year-old who might come into my clinic and is wondering, okay, here, perfect example. I see a lot of people marketing AirPod sleeves, like custom sleeves. Gosh, what a great appointment for hearing conservation. You know, that could be an hour appointment with education, a really great hearing test, talking to them about how to use them properly, et cetera, et cetera, looking at other noise exposures they have in their lives. And again, if any audiologist is thinking, well, I don't really know how to go about this, there's a really great organization called the National Hearing Conservation Association. And like all of us music audiologists are in there and a lot of other people who work in hearing conservation, and there are so many resources for you available. Hearing conservation tends not to really have a lot of spotlight or a place in some of the other larger organizations. But for those who are really interested in it, NHCA is really the hub. It's the home base for that. And so if this is an area you want to expand into, I would say join and start talking to people. One of the great things about NHCA is that all of us are really, really accessible. And like we're always happy to talk to anybody. So if you have a particular area that you're interested in, you can actually just speak to someone (laughs) in that area and learn from them.
0: That sounds perfect. I think that's a really helpful resource for everyone. And I agree. I mean, I remember at some point in my, you know, doctoral program, having a good section, honestly, it might have even been a class, but it was like a short summer semester class on like occupational audiology. And a lot of the focus was on like, this could be a career path where it's more noise management, factory settings. It wasn't just like, Blending this concept into your daily practice. And I do see a major need for that kind of a thing. I think that's really great. It's a great perspective.
1: Yeah. I remember my noise class, and I remember people in my cohort just kind of thinking or kind of saying, like, well, I don't think we're really going to use this. You know, it was sort of like viewed as like an easy class. And I remember being really, really excited about it. And I knew I wanted to work in hearing conservation. I didn't know what realm exactly. And I remember bringing it up to, One of the older professors who has since passed away. But I remember being told that it was no place for a young woman. Mm, Wow. And I think now, like, all of us need to get into hearing conservation. It's the place for all of us.
0: Sure. (laughs) what a horrible comment gosh
1: (laughs) no i thought it was really cute she was really sweet i mean she had my no no she had my best interests at heart you know (laughs) it was actually very endearing but i think hearing conservation is often viewed as sort of this tough you know you go into factories or you're in a van
0: oh yeah you're in the factory you gotta wear your hard hat
1: yeah yeah but i mean hearing conservation is so much more than that
0: absolutely Cool. Well, okay. So then let's transition then into this idea of alternative audiology. And when you first mentioned it to me, I did a little bit of Googling and I was like, I can't really find anything too specific here. I'm trying to prepare a little bit. Uh, can you break down what that concept is and how it came about?
1: Yeah, honestly, it came about because somebody called me an alternative audiologist. <laughs> so I call like any non hearing aid device that amplifies I call it alternative amplification. And so I I often talk about fitting al- alternative amplification and then another audiologist said to me, "Well, it's really alternative audiology." And I think it's true. I hope in the future it won't be alternative, it'll just be audiology, but I think right now it's viewed that way. So it's not really an official term, but I know a lot of audiologists who are like me. They are all alternative audiologists. So it's not just music audiology. You know, I do tinnitus management and, of course, teleaudiology, audiology alternative amplification, even research, I feel like, is a little bit of alternative audiology. So I guess it's anything that isn't regularly practiced by, like, the friendly neighborhood audiology clinic down the street in the traditional method.
0: Absolutely. And what kind of draws you into approaching things that way?
1: I don't know exactly other than I think... Number one, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur, and I think it's because of my background, you know, playing gigs and working as a musician. I like to do different things. I like to be in charge of my own schedule, <laughs> for example. And so sometimes that lends itself to doing odd things. The other thing is, I always like to look at new tech and I like to see what's coming down the pipes and what the newest thing is and what might be best for my patient. And one of the things that Is intriguing to me is when a patient comes in and says, I bought this device or I saw something online, you know, can you help me work with it? Of of course, you know, if it's helping, if we can measure benefit in some way. If not, then sorry, like you might need something else. But anyway, that's sort of, I think alternative audiology in a nutshell is really anything that's not in that traditional model. Now, that being said, I think there are other alternative areas that have existed forever that like don't get the credit they deserve. I think of things like interoperative monitoring, even vestibular work. Gosh, I would never do vestibular. I think it's so cool that people do that. It's not for me. Even like pediatrics or educational, there's all these subspecialties within audiology, but yet the general population thinks audiologists fit hearing aids.
0: Yeah, that's what this series is that we've been doing with the podcast every couple episodes or so, calling it the full scope of audiology and just kind of exploring this is one of these episodes will be these different aspects. And we've had an episode on intraoperative neuromonitoring, we've had an episode on vestibular, just trying to explore some of those topics, because I'm so fascinated by it. It's one of the things I love about audiology is all of the different ways you can practice it. So I appreciate this idea of alternative audiology. I'm curious if there's kind of like Obviously, it's not a written down ideology. But if there's like a principle to approaching things this way that you feel like maybe a student who I think of like a student or maybe an audiologist who's been at it a while and is just feeling kind of disheartened by whether it's the repetition or like the feeling of being locked into practicing a certain way, what you would say to that kind of person who sees the more cookie cutter side of audiology?
1: I think with the students, it's a little easier Because they haven't locked into a certain career yet. Like, I find that they're the most empowered to do things a little differently. Perfect example, I'm speaking with a doctoral school cohort. I don't know what year they are. I'm speaking to them tomorrow. They may be second or third years about other things to do in audiology besides just going in, you know, to a hearing aid clinic or how you incorporate different things. With someone who's been in the field for years, I've been letting people shadow me, like with teleaudiology, for example. Because I think a lot of people who have been doing the same thing for a very long time just don't have the confidence. At least that's what I'm seeing. You know, they say, oh, this is really interesting. I'd love to do this. I just feel awkward. You know, it's just not their norm. The other thing is, you know, maybe they're wondering about income. That's just so true for a lot of people right now you know, afraid to leave the model they have because they're not sure if the income level will be the same. And I'm here to say, yes, it will be. (laughs) It might just, you know, you just have to get used to it. But that's really what I'm saying. Audiologists are so well trained and so smart. There's so much we learn, not just during our four years in doctoral school, but as we continue to practice that I feel a lot of that knowledge and information kind of gets left on the table. You know, and so I think one of the beautiful things about this field of, you know, what we're calling alternative audiology is really reaching into that knowledge base and using all the nuggets of audiologic wisdom to reach new people. So rather than just getting stuck in one area saying, well, I learned about this, I can do this, you know, and people, I think what I've been seeing again in the couple of years I've been working with Tuned and, and getting people into this area of audiology they have this renewed sense of wanting to learn, which I think is really, really nice. Where they're looking up articles, you know, they're sending me articles they're reading, and they're they're seeking out specific things to learn, even in new specialties. Someone asked me recently about, gosh, what was it? Oh, I'm totally blanking. But it was a field of audiology I really knew nothing about, and I don't work in. And I said, hey, go for it. If you want to do it, go for it.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And I think. That's one of the things this podcast is trying to inspire is that love of lifelong learning, that, you know, trying something new. And I think one of the things I'm really going to take from our conversation is really generalizing some of the knowledge that I might, you know, if I see somebody who's in a factory setting, like I might spend more time on that hearing conservation approach, but not really think about it as much for someone else. But I think you're really making it clear how good it is to generalize that wide knowledge base we have and that it doesn't have to be so segmented for certain kinds of patients. That's really, really helpful.
1: It was implantable devices. Oh, okay. That's what I was blanking on. It was programming Bajas and CIs remotely. And I ended up pointing them like to another audiologist who could maybe help them because that's I really don't know anything about that. <laughs> but that's what it was. Yes. <laughs> but I said, yeah, make a teleaudiology clinic and if it's if you can do it, make it happen.
0: So let's, can we jump to teleaudiology then? I mean, this is such an emerging thing and it's interesting. So, where I'm at, we're a speech and hearing clinic. And so, my speech colleagues are, you know, since I mean, they had a little bit of teletherapy options pre-COVID, but I mean, once the pandemic started, most of our students, most of our SLP faculty members, they were seeing a ton and still to this day are seeing a ton of teletherapy clients because the model works really well for SLPs. I know from the conversations I've had with other audiologists and sometimes even with myself, like the hesitation about, okay, well, how's this going to work if I have to like physically manipulate a device And that's, you know, a big part, I see a lot of cochlear implant patients. So like, it's a big part of what I do. How do I show them this is how you remove the microphone cover? And how do I show them that the cables broken? I just worry about that. But then I also think about how much of my job and how much of my time is just counseling and education and how that can easily be done and might even be more effective when they're in their home. And they can say, well, you know, I sit over here, my wife sits here, and I can say, well, look how far apart you are, and look how close you are to the refrigerator or the TV. So I can see both sides of it. I'm curious what you say to someone who's a little bit more skeptical about the future of telehealth and audiology.
1: Well, you know what's interesting? I was looking up some, actually for the lecture I'm doing tomorrow, I wanted to give the students a kind of a context of teleaudiology, and I realized I didn't really know when it started. And I don't know if you know this, but the concept of telemedicine was written about in the Lancet in 1879. Was the fir- not kidding you. This was on an NIH article I read this. So that was the first article on telemedicine and the telephone had just been invented and already the medical community said, "Wow, this can really expand our care." So to me that was fascinating. Now, of course, many households didn't have a phone. So it didn't really, it like didn't take off, obviously. But in the 1950s, people started using it a little bit. And I thought that was interesting too, because when I think of teleaudiology, I think it's this new thing. The term teleaudiology was coined in the 1990s. I don't remember who coined it. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name. But that came about in the 90s. And what's really interesting, just today on one of the audiology Facebook groups, I saw someone make a post about tinnitus. And I saw another audiologist comment and say, I've been doing tinnitus therapy via telehealth since 1997. And so first, let me start by saying, let's give a nod to those audiologists, you know, because that's really, talk about forward thinking. To me, that's phenomenal. We all think this is some new thing we're creating. It's not. There are pioneers in our field who have been doing this for years. Now, COVID changed things. The rate of telehealth visits is 38 times higher now than it was in 2019. That's a statistic I saw recently. What I'm finding with telehealth is I'm seeing people who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, mostly, who are work from home and who are experiencing severe listening fatigue, and they don't know what's going on, you know, and so they want to get a hearing screening. Now, things like a cochlear implant fitting or hearing aid fitting. It can be done, of course. I have done a hearing aid fitting remotely. It's different, but it's doable. And I think it depends on the clinician and patient and what you feel your patient can handle. You know, I have one patient I'm thinking of. She has a smartphone, but she's 82 and she's a nun. She's a choir director. And like she wouldn't be a good fit for telehealth. Sure. You know,
0: (laughs) there's some limitations, obviously. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. She's someone who needs to come in and see me. But then I have other people who, like, are in their 60s. I'm thinking of a couple more hearing aid patients to make this more normal and not like music audiology related, who are great over telehealth. We've done Bluetooth sessions, how to use your app, you know, how to clean the hearing aids so that it really lessens the time of the initial visit. And then we follow up via telehealth. So I really view it as sort of a hybrid. Moving forward, there's some doom and gloom in the audiology culture right now, but I really see it as really just expanding our practices. The idea of alternative amplification and, and telecare, bringing new patients in who you wouldn't have seen before. So, like you might be thinking about your cochlear implant patients and how they would work via teleaudiology. On the other hand, you might start doing teleaudiology and realizing that's not who you're seeing on there.
0: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah.
1: I saw a woman recently who's 30, and she works in transcription. She works 10-hour days. And she told me that by the end of the day, her ears are so tired that she, like, doesn't want any sound on at all. And I took a look at her setup. She's got a setup from the company she works for. And I said, well, what's going on here? And she said, well, by the end of the day, like, my volume's at 100 And I was like, you know, how long do you think your volume's at 100? She's like at least five hours. Oh, gosh. And because of the recordings she's getting and the fact that her headphones aren't great and, you know, this and that. Anyway, I ended up doing a full hearing screening with her, which includes, you know, the CEDRA and which is a great questionnaire for looking at at capturing disease like ear disease. I did a threshold screening with her online and I did the digits and noise test with her online. I like to do thresholds and digits and noise as like a cross-validation. I don't like to ever just do one online screening tool. I don't think it's enough. But in any case, she was like well within normal limits. She really didn't have any complaints except this listening fatigue. And she thought maybe something was really wrong with her. So I ended up saying to her, you know, I think you're a good candidate for Sonic Cloud, And, you know, download it to your laptop. I had her check with IT to make sure it would work with her software she was using for transcription. Now, this is a non-music person. This is a normal person who you know, wanted an appointment with an audiologist and she learned how to use Sonic Cloud to EQ what she's listening to for speech clarity. And she's able to keep her volume much, much lower. She's at like less than 70% and all because of EQ. So I really think that's the kind of the new world we're walking into. Our current patients aren't going away, but we're going to be gaining millions of new types of patients. And I really think that's where we need to be ready that's really hearing conservation.
0: That's a great, great, great message and a really great perspective. I also see a lot of the the Facebook groups are just doom and gloom central. Yeah, I feel like the people I talk to on this podcast are just way more inspiring and optimistic, and I tend to take on that perspective because of the people I get to talk to. So I really appreciate that perspective and seeing it. You know, the current patients aren't going anywhere. It's a whole new group that we haven't even thought about that we're going to be exposed to and learning from and working with. So that's awesome. That's a really great way to put it.
1: Yeah. And I do think audiologists should look at the teleaudiology scene and sometimes with caution. You know, most a lot of the teleaudiology platforms right now are, are in relation to a device purchase. And that has bothered me a little bit. And that's one of the reasons why I was excited to be head of audiology for Tune to kind of help guide the process. It's me and the other two audiologists who I work with are Dr. Kathleen Wallace and Dr. Laura Sinnett, And so we do a lot of things looking at what's the best scenario for the audiologist and the patient, and how can we keep this totally brand agnostic, no devices or anything need to be recommended to patients. It's purely about putting the audiologic expertise out front, because when you really think about it, that is what the patient needs. First, devices come later. And I think so often in our field, we're device-led, whether it's earplugs or hearing aids. That seems to always be the first part of the discussion. But really, it should be hearing and audiologic care. That's number one.
0: That's awesome. That's really awesome. And I'm excited to see what comes from your work with Tuned and how that kind of shapes... The future of teleaudiology. And I think that perspective is awesome. We are really coming close to the end of our time. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your days busking at Disney World. <laughs> but I wonder if you want to close this. I didn't want this to be, you know, a real. Raunchy's not the right word. I wasn't looking for raunchy. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Like, I didn't want it to be like a gossipy, like, oh, tell us about all the stars that you've worked with. But I was curious if you have a really a story that like you'll never forget. Not necessarily, they didn't have to be somebody super famous, but just like an experience in this music audiology world that you feel like, hey, if you're a student out there who's even considering this, listen to this story. This is going to be so crazy.
1: Oh man, a million are going through my mind right now. I try not to tell my craziest stories ever. <laughs> it's so funny the other music audiologists I know, we often say, "We'll write them all down and then when we're all dead, they can be published." Oh my gosh. <laughs> And I'm not as wild as I used to be. You know, actually here, I'll tell a story from when I was a student and I don't even have to mention a band. And it was it was the moment I knew I had been accepted into the music audiology community. It was my first week with Mike Santucci as my preceptor. And it was my first time going out to see a band with him. It's a band that's like kind of country folk, but they've become quite famous. And he says to me, OK, I don't want you to say a word. You just stand here. You observe me just be really cool. Don't ask anybody for an autograph, you know, whatever. Like the whole spiel that we give students, you know, before we go to see bands. And we walk into the venue and the fiddle player from the band goes, Heather, what are you doing here? <laughs> and <laughs> I will never forget the look on Mike's face when he goes, because he hadn't met them yet. And he goes, you know them? And I was like, oh, yeah, I used to play with them a little bit. <laughs> That's one of my favorite Memories. Of course, there are great memories from shows and working with people. Some of my favorites have really been, again, when the whole band is together. I remember this one band I was working with, they all had the gnarliest earwax, which typically, and I don't know why, (laughs) I don't know why, it was just these guys. And typically in the patient, in the clinic, you get these patients who are like, oh, that's so gross. These guys loved it. They did like videos on it, all this stuff. That was a really fun memory. And then, of course, my Just to finish out my best memories, I occasionally take students and my best memories are like watching students interact with famous artists. I had this one student, the first student I ever had, we were working with a really, really famous singer and my student, he was just really cool about it. Anyway, they ended up exchanging cell phone numbers and they're like still friends today. And I'm just like, this is the coolest. I think the hallmark of a good music audiologist is just loving on people and meeting them where they're at. And especially when you're working with like the big crews and artists, just viewing them as everyday people. Of course, my heart has always been with the crews. Not that I don't care about the artists. They're cool, too. But I love working with the guys who are building the stages, who are mixing the sound. They're the blue collar of the music industry. And they're so often overlooked. And they're sort of my favorites. A lot of the good times that are going through my mind is with those guys.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that, and I think that that's definitely going to be enough to inspire a lot of students out there and maybe clinicians who had always considered this. Now, I do want to give a very big disclosure here. Just because you take some of these tips does not mean you're going to be, you know, taking impressions for Justin Bieber. It's like, I would love if you're willing to share some of your information if people have further questions. But those questions should not be things like how do I, you know, get backstage passes? Because I don't think that's step one in working here. I think you hit the nail on the head there at the end there. It's about like loving the people that you're working with and being really passionate about hearing conservation and, you know, excellent audiologic care. So if someone wanted to reach out with, to you with questions that are related to that aspect of things, how could they go about
1: it? They can email me and my email address is heather at soundcheckaudiology.com If they have questions about Teleaudiology or Tuned, which the website's tunedcare.com. My email address for that is Heather at tunedcare.com. I'm happy to help with, you know, either aspect. I will say too, you know, I keep bringing up Mike Santucci. He taught me most of what I know in this field. He does have a course called Gold Circle, which he used to give in person. He's putting that onto videos. So people can always, you know, keep their eye on Sensophonics for when that's released if they really want to go through more in-depth training on how to work with musicians.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much for plugging that too. And I didn't get a chance to mention it earlier, but I'm sorry, Soundcheck Audiology, being audiology for musicians, is the best name Thank you very much. (laughs) so awesome. That's awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for joining me. This has been just one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on this podcast. So thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com ear. That's SpeechTherapyPD.com E-A-R.